it's 2055, your flying car has broken down, and you're late for work. But lucky for you, you have another way to commute, which is quick. Tapping on your Apple phone implant in your wrist, you log into your company's virtual space in the metaverse. You connect some virtual reality goggles to the magnetic contacts embedded in your temples, and within seconds, you've connected to your avatar. Opening your eyes, you see a corporate boardroom around you, with your colleagues' avatars seated around a table. You glance down at your hands, which look and feel real even though they're digital constructs. Something like this is the future that Mark Zuckerberg, CEO of Facebook, now Metaverse, wants for us. Hey, Igram. Hey, Mark. Hey, want to update everyone on the latest with the avatars ecosystem? Yes, we have so many exciting things going on. Our first milestone is making it so you could use your avatar across all of our apps and in VR. The new Meta Account Center, it already allows you to have one or multiple avatars, so you could show up however you want. And if you have one avatar you really like, you can now easily sync it across all the apps and in Horizon. This future borrows from an ancient idea, the avatar. But what is an avatar? And what does it mean to have a digital version of yourself? And moreover, is the digital version of you floating in that boardroom real? And if it is real, is it really you? Digital avatars aren't the only kinds of avatars we hear about today, though. And they're not the only ones that raise difficult philosophical questions. There are blue-skinned alien avatars, which are flesh and blood. In a 2009 movie named Avatar, they're kind of physical vehicles for human beings who link up to them through a kind of sci-fi interface. The concept is to drive these remotely controlled bodies called avatars. They're grown from human DNA mixed with DNA of the natives. Marine in an avatar body. That's a potent mix. And in a cartoon series with the same name, Avatar, we have a young boy with a blue arrow on his head. Water. Earth. Fire. Air. Long ago, the four nations lived together in harmony. Then, everything changed when the Fire Nation attacked. Only the Avatar, master of all four elements, could stop them. But when the world needed him most, he vanished. A hundred years passed and my brother and I discovered the new Avatar, an airbender named Aang. And although his airbending skills are great, he has a lot to learn before he's ready to save anyone. In this world, the Avatar is a reincarnation of sorts, with special powers like airbending. He can make air do his will blowing wind with incredible force to defeat enemies. All of these, floating digital images, blue-skinned alien hybrids, and reincarnated superheroes, are called avatars. In this episode, we'll see how they're all drawing on different ideas associated with the Sanskrit origins of that term. And we'll investigate the questions they bring up about the relationship between ourself and reality, the past and the future, and even the divine and the human. I'm Malcolm Keating, and you're listening to Sutras and Stuff. Like the first Sanskrit loanword in our season, avatar in English has changed meaning and pronunciation from when it first appeared in Sanskrit. In Sanskrit, we would talk about an avatara, 
a word which comes from the combination of the prefix ava and the verb tri. Ava can mean a downward motion, and tri conveys a sense of motion, especially in the sense of crossing over. Often the word shows up in an abstract form, avatarana, which just means descent. As a starting definition, then, an avatar is someone or something who is descended. Probably the most famous avatar in Sanskrit literature is Krishna, who is an avatar of Vishnu in the Mahabharata, a massive epic centering on a conflict between two great families. In that story, we learn why Vishnu descends to earth as Krishna. The avatar idea is most famously known according to what Krishna says to Arjuna in the Bhagavad Gita, which is that he um, takes form uh, occasionally in order to, when Dharma is at a low point, in order to rescue the good and punish the wicked. As Simon Broadbeck explains, the idea of the avatar then involves a god who decides to be born as a human being. Unlike ordinary humans who are bound by karma, as we learned in episode one of this season, Vishnu has a choice. He doesn't have to be born into a limited human body, but he does for a very specific purpose. So an avatar serves a function. We see this in contemporary avatars, too, that they're for a specific purpose. Digital avatars are so that you can communicate with people across distances, maybe. The airbender avatar is very specifically on a mission. We'll set him aside until later in this episode, though, because that story is indebted more to Buddhism. Finally, the fictional alien avatars are also for a purpose. But when it comes to James Cameron's movie, there are some striking dissimilarities, almost inversions in the idea of an avatar. Note that I'm going to have some spoilers for the new Avatar 2 movie. If you haven't seen it and you don't want to hear about it, skip ahead a minute or so, or just go see the movie and come back. So let's talk about Vishnu, Krishna, and Cameron's avatars. A lot of people have already observed that both avatars are blue. Famously, Krishna and Vishnu are illustrated as being blue in art, and in the Mahabharata, they're both described with the word nila, which means dark or dark blue. This often describes a deep dark blue with a kind of sheen. Now, the blue color of both avatars, Krishna and the alien ones, suggested to many people that Cameron was intentionally or at least subconsciously borrowing from the Sanskrit term avatara as applied to Vishnu. However, in the original avatar, the main character who inhabits the body of a blue-human-alien hybrid is a paraplegic. Jake Sully is a human being who isn't able to use his legs, but when he enters a little chamber, connects some wires to his skull, and closes his eyes, his consciousness enters a Navi hybrid alien, which has full use of its body and in fact is stronger than human beings. This is an inversion of Vishnu's descent in the Mahabharata, where a powerful god becomes a human being. In fact, Krishna has to reveal his full powers to Arjuna in the Bhagavad Gita, as they're normally hidden. In contrast, Sully wants to remain embodied in his Navi body because he's gained new powers. There's another striking contrast in Avatar 2, and here come the spoilers. The film upgrades the Navi hybrid aliens. They're still kind of human-alien clones so that human consciousness can connect with them, but in this movie, the memories of Marines from the first movie are directly implanted into them. There's no more syncing devices. 
This means that instead of a living marine controlling an avatar from a distance, like a kind of biological puppet, there could be two versions of a marine's consciousness alive at the same time. And this raises some classic philosophical questions about personal identity. For instance, in the first movie, Colonel Miles Korich is the bad guy. He gets killed at the end of that story. But in Avatar 2, we learn that he had downloaded his memories before his death so they could be uploaded into a hybrid Navi avatar. So does this mean that Miles actually survived and he did not die? Does it matter that his memories were implanted into an alien hybrid? If it does, and because of this he didn't survive, then it seems like ourselves' whole continued existence doesn't just depend on memories, but also on the kind of body we inhabit. That raises a whole other set of questions. Since our bodies change over time and we can lose limbs and other parts of our bodies, and we still think that we, that is ourself, survives. These are all kind of standard questions that come up at the intersection of science fiction and philosophy. But at one point in the movie, the character of Miles said something which made me wonder about whether Cameron is intentionally inverting the idea of the Avatara. The colonel, the baddie, speaks to his fellow bad guy hybrid alien marines. They're all uploaded consciousnesses like himself. He says, For our sins in our past life, we have been brought back in the form of our enemy. And this statement seems to allude to the ideas of karma and reincarnation. But again, here we have an inversion of the avatar idea in which a god freely decides to be reborn. And also, mostly, avatars are positive interventions into humanity. Even if avatars do awful things, like start a massive war, it's for the sake of humanity. But what does it mean to say that Vishnu, for example, descends to Earth in the form of Krishna? Is Vishnu, a powerful deity, now fully a human being? Or is he in some way half divine and half human? The answer to that question isn't totally clear, and different religious and philosophical traditions have varying answers. In the Mahabharata, in a section known as the Arivamsha Avatarana, or the Descent of the First Generations, we get a description of this descent. The great god Brahma says to the other gods that they each have to be born either with or by a part of themselves, a bhaga. Now, there's a potential ambiguity in the Sanskrit here. Some interpreters understand this to mean that a portion of each god goes into the human beings who are born and that this is a partial incarnation. Others think this is a description of how the reincarnation happens, that it is by means of a part of the god that a complete new god is born. And on that understanding, it's a bit like an amoeba or a starfish which reproduces by fission. A little bit of the creature is split off and then generates a completely new but entirely whole duplicate. This debate over the relationship with the gods and their human avatar goes back a long time. It isn't just a modern scholarly and philosophical preoccupation. Two of the greatest philosophers of Vedanta, Shankara and Ramanuja, discussed this very question. Even though the word avatara isn't found at all in the Bhagavad Gita, the idea is surely there because, well, it's a part of the Mahabharata and also because it contains a famous scene of Krishna revealing himself as divine to his human cousin, Arjuna. 
Shankara and Ramanuja both write commentaries on the Bhagavad Gita and grapple with how to understand the metaphysics of this scene, among other sections of the text. Shankara, who lived sometime in the 7th to 8th century common era, is known for his work in Advaita Vedanta. Advaita means non-dual, and it's a long tradition of thought, taking the Brahma Sutras as its starting point. To generalize broadly, Advaitins like Shankara think that reality is one. It is Brahman. Ramesh Putney explains. What are the ideas of Advaita Vedanta? So the ideas of Advaita Vedanta are basically these five things which we need to consider. Number one, Brahman, Atma, which is the self. Brahman is the one reality. Maya is the power of illusion. Avidya, which is ignorance of the truth. And Moksha, liberation whilst living. So what Shankaracharya says about Brahman is that Brahma Satyam Jagatamitya Jiva Brahmeva Napara, which means Brahman is the only truth. Brahman is the only truth and this world is an illusion. It is unreal. Just what this idea of oneness means and what illusion means is the work of philosophers like Shankara and followers to parse out, especially since we seem to experience more things than just one. Even if we're massively deluded about our experiences, it certainly seems like there's at least me, a subject, and something else that I'm experiencing. That's two things. So when it comes to Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita, Shankara has to explain a few things. First, he has to explain why it seems as if there's Krishna and Arjuna and a bunch of people on a battlefield, when really, ultimately, in some sense, there is only Brahman. But he also has to explain in what sense, according to the Mahabharata, Krishna is a divine avatar of Vishnu. Now, Shankara's solution in chapter 4 is to appeal to a delusion-making process called maya, often translated as illusion. Now, whatever maya is, and however it creates our sense of a world of multiplicity that isn't Brahman, it's the same thing, according to Shankara, that produces the avatar. Now, he doesn't say much about the avatar idea, just a few things here and there. But a later philosopher, Ramanuja, in the 11th century, says quite a lot. And he writes quite a lot about it, also quoting from texts known as the Puranas, which are something like popular yet still religiously important accounts of the lives of gods and other central figures in what we now call Hindu mythology. Ramanuja quotes a specific Purana, the Vishnu Purana. He quotes it quite a lot, in fact. So Ramanuja was, in a sense, the first... Vedanta commentator, or at least a commentator whose works are extant, uh, who really sort of infuses uh, Vedanta with these, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, popular texts, uh, Puranic texts like uh, the Vishnu Purana. He does um, cite from other Puranas here and there, but the bulk of his uh, uh, arguments are supported by material from the Vishnu Purana. Sucharita Adlery, who has written on Ramanuja's use of this Puranic text, points out that he is bringing together popular devotion with texts like the Upanishads, where the world's identification with Brahman is expressed. Now, Ramanuja's tradition is known as Vishishta Daita Vedanta, a mouthful of a term which is often called qualified non-dualism. But maybe a better way to put it is it's non-dualism about something which is qualified. In other words, 
Brahman is qualified. He has qualities. And a good analogy for this, which Ramanuja himself uses, is that Brahman is like the soul and the world, and that's us included, are like his body. Now there's still one thing, but the soul or the self is the most fundamental thing and the body exists in dependence on it. So how does this help with the idea of the avatar and its relationship to the Vishnu Purana? Well, the Vishnu Purana contains a lot of stories about Vishnu's many avatars, as well as statements about his relationship to Brahman, and Ramanuja deploys it to support his interpretation of the Bhagavad Gita. For Ramanuja, Vishnu is Brahman, and Krishna's being a physical embodiment of Vishnu is consistent with the idea of Brahman being the soul, or the kind of deep self of the world. But this raises another question. What is the difference between Krishna as an avatar of Vishnu and the rest of us who are qualities of Brahman? An avatar is supposed to be a special divine descent come into the human world for a purpose. But if we are all in some manner embodiments of the divine, are we all just avatars? Now one answer in part is that you and I are bound by karma, unlike Krishna. Our births are not something that we can choose. And another difference is that Krishna, as Vishnu in physical form, has come to earth not just for the purposes already mentioned, that is, kicking off a bloody war that relieves the earth of some of her population, but he's also here to be the object of human devotion. Unlike us, who are, according to Ramanuja, confused about our natures, or thinking that we're merely human beings, separate from the divine, Krishna is aware of his nature. And because Krishna knows who he is, and he has compassion on human beings, devotion to him is part of the way in which human beings can become aware of their true natures and free themselves from the bondage of karma. While neither Shankara or Ramanuja were thinking of the digital world, Their questions about reality have some parallels in questions raised by contemporary philosophers. For instance, David Chalmers is a well-known philosopher who has argued that virtual reality is a kind of reality. Virtual objects are perfectly real. They're non-illusory digital objects that are really out there that you're really interacting with. And the fact that they're digital doesn't make them less real. Here's an illustration like a biological kitten, a robot kitten, and a virtual kitten. I don't want to say that the virtual kitten is a biological kitten. Obviously, it's not. I think the robot kitten is not either. Um, You might say neither of them are real kittens, but they're both real objects. And what I want to say is uh, is that the virtual kitten is at least on a par with the robot kitten in terms of its existence. Perhaps we might think of the relationship between virtual reality and physical reality as something like how Ramanuja understands the relationship between the world of human beings and Brahman. Brahman is the deepest reality, and human beings exist only in dependence on him. Digital avatars are real, but just in a different way than physical beings, and they depend on us, at least right now, for their existence. Of course, this also raises a whole host of ethical questions, some of which philosophers have already begun thinking about, and some of which are analogous to the ethical challenges the Bhagavad Gita is famous for. If I murder your digital avatar, have I done something wrong? In a military game where the avatars are engaged in battle, maybe that's okay. 
But imagine that we're in the metaverse at work instead. A murder there in the corporate boardroom seems wrong, but why? If you can reboot your avatar and no one has really died, what's the problem? The Bhagavad Gita takes place in the middle of a battle where Arjuna, Krishna's cousin, is supposed to kill a bunch of friends and family who are on the other side. The Gita itself kicks off when Arjuna refuses to fight. Part of Krishna's motivation, the reason he tells Arjuna he should fight, is that Arjuna is not really killing anyone. At least he's not killing the imperishable parts of people. And this claim, of course, is true for both Ramanuja and Shankara in different ways. And this would also be true in the metaverse. But, back to the Bhagavad Gita, if people are really Brahman in either Shankara or Ramanuja's sense, what are the grounds for our ethical norms about killing? Both of these philosophers appeal to the Vedas and to our social situation. Arjuna has responsibilities because he is a warrior, even if being a warrior isn't the most fundamental fact about Arjuna. For Shankara, though, if we take ourselves to be acting, whether ethically acting or not, we are involved in a deep confusion, since this introduces a dualism. You might say that for him, the study of ethics is a provisional step, something that more advanced meditators and introspectors will move beyond. Ramanuja, on the other hand, at least seems to be more accepting of ethical inquiry as useful for understanding the real nature of the world. It's a way of teaching us dependence on what's fundamentally real, on Brahman, who is Vishnu. I'll stop here because interpreting these thinkers is extremely difficult, and there are quite a few approaches you can learn about if you're interested. The main point is that once we accept levels of reality or that we're mistaken in thinking that we are in the most deep fundamental level of reality, or if we accept a distinction between what is fundamentally real and what is only dependently real, we then have some ethical questions that we need to grapple with. These ethical questions come up in the intersection of Buddhism and Vaishnavism. Vaishnavism is most broadly a religious and philosophical orientation that takes worship of Vishnu as its focus. There are lots of Vaishnavite groups and lots of different Vaishnavite texts, but one of the most important texts is one I mentioned earlier, the Vishnu Purana. The text is hard to date, but maybe it's from the 3rd to the 6th century common era. In it, we learn about the ten avatars of Vishnu, in Sanskrit, the Dashavatara. One of these avatars is the historical Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama. He shows up as Vishnu's avatar in a number of Puranas, not just the Vishnu Purana. Was Buddha a god? No, he was a real person. Like Jesus? Yes, quite a bit like Jesus, though he was born long before. Now, these Buddhist monks in the movie Little Buddha deny that the Buddha was a god, but they accept that he was a historical person, like Jesus. Vaishnavites might agree with this part of the comparison to Jesus, in the sense that Jesus is thought to be human, but also divine. Unlike Jesus, the Buddha avatar has a dark side in Vaishnavism. This avatar of Vishnu is in the form of a person historically known for opposing some of the central ideas in Vaishnavism and indeed other broadly Hindu traditions. 
In the Vishnu Purana, the Buddha is an avatar who has the power of delusion. This is the same word, maya, that both Shankara and Ramanuja use. In the Purana, the Buddha avatar teaches people to stop performing Vedic ritual sacrifice, and he tells them that he has a secret way that they should follow instead. But the people that he's talking to are characterized by the text as demonic. They were already engaging in Vedic ritual practices, but they were misusing those practices, misusing those rituals. So what the Buddha is doing is ensuring that some already bad people are consigned to destruction. The Buddha avatar of Vishnu appears in a lot of texts with different stories and with different emphases over time. Scholars of religion have a range of theories about what these depictions say about the history of Vaishnavism and Puranic texts. Regardless, though, we have a puzzle about ethics, this time about how to square lying and deception with a divine being. Some later thinkers in the Gaudiya Vaishnavite tradition argue that the Buddha, the Buddha avatar, is not really rejecting the Veda, but he's merely pretending to do so, and he's in fact saving these demonic people. After all, in their next lives, they'll be able to understand the truth. But in this current life, the Vishnu avatar has stopped them performing sacrifices wrongly by misleading them. After all, if Vishnu is able to be both one and many, then certainly he can delude and convey the truth at the same time. So far, we have seen that the avatar idea involves a divine being with a mission, descending to earth. They often take on a human existence, although many of Vishnu's ten avatars are not human. One famous avatar is the Narasimha, or man-lion, who's half human and half animal. All of these avatars have ethical aims, but they may employ violence or even deception as needed. And it's important for the avatar in the Mahabharata and elsewhere that their births are voluntary. They choose to be born a certain way. All of this is against the background of that long history of philosophies and traditions that we today call Hinduism. But what about Buddhism? Are there avatars in Buddhism? Only the avatar, master of all four elements, could stop them. Now, the cartoon series, which aired on the U.S. channel Nickelodeon in the early 2000s, featured a young boy named Aang, bald-headed and enrobed in orange, and he was said to be the Avatar. He has a purpose, to stop humans from killing each other, bring peace, and he has some special powers, although they do seem to be supercharged versions of powers that other humans also have. And Aang is explicitly a reincarnation of previous Avatars, whom he talks with throughout the show at different times. Avatar the Last Airbender is often compared with Buddhism, and the series itself makes these connections pretty obvious, naming characters Gyatso, which is a common name for Dalai Lamas, including the current one, Tenzin Gyatso. And you might hear that this Dalai Lama is an avatar of Avalokiteshvara, who is an extremely popular figure in Buddhism across the world. He is supposed to be a kind of manifestation of the Buddha, and he manifests himself in many different forms. But there's a difference between the way Buddhists, like the Dalai Lama, think about manifestation and reincarnation and the avatar idea we've been discussing. That's the idea that there is a distinct self which is reborn from one lifetime to another. Buddhists famously deny that such a thing can be identified at any deep metaphysical level. 
There might be reasons to trace a narrative from the present to the past and, for instance, to draw a connection from the current Dalai Lama to past Tibetan Buddhists who hold that same institutional position. But there is no equivalent metaphysically of a soul or a self that moves from lifetime to lifetime. Different Buddhist traditions explain it differently, but the Dalai Lama's Tibetan tradition thinks that what reincarnates is a bit like a set of memory traces and dispositions. In the next life, they will result in certain actions and attitudes. And that's why the Dalai Lama himself isn't very concerned about the possibility of humans being able to upload their minds into machines. Now, further development of the technology, and eventually a new type of human being, uh, uh, say, due to these machines, something, uh, Welcome. No problem. He's also on record saying that teachers and even the Buddha choosing to reincarnate or not to reincarnate isn't as important as the Buddhist teaching continuing. My own life, you see, uh, concern my concern me. The next, not my concern. No Buddha's reincarnation. No Nagarjuna's reincarnation. But their teaching over a thousand years remain. So the teaching is important. Then the institution. Unlike the divine avatars of Vishnu, in Buddhism, the Buddha is not thought of as a god, but as a fully realized human being, someone who has awakened to what reality actually is. And while the current Dalai Lama and other lamas tell narratives tracing their current physical and mental embodiment back to previous ones, the emphasis is on explaining a kind of transpersonal stream of consciousness. What does this mean for the comparison between the Buddha and Jesus that we heard in The Little Buddha? Let's conclude by taking a step back and talking about a very common cross-cultural comparison, incarnation and the avatar. I remember visiting the Holy Rosary Church in Udupi, in the south of India. While I was there, talking with one of the guides, the subject of the Incarnation came up. And this person said that they explained the concept to their friends in India by saying that Jesus is the avatar of God the Father. Once they said this, their friends all understood then the doctrine of the Incarnation. Now this parallel is a very common one. Although, like the idea of the avatar, the idea of the Christian incarnation is one that has a history and many different theological and philosophical approaches. There's even a book by a religious studies scholar talking about this, Jeffrey Parander's Avatar and Incarnation. While it's tempting to want to equate the two ideas, and certainly they have some commonalities, there's at least one crucial difference even before we get into the philosophical nitty-gritty. In Christianity, there's only one incarnation, even if God does manifest himself in different ways, like burning bushes. One thing that these two ideas, incarnation and the avatar, share is a fundamental philosophical problem that we've already touched on. And that's how a single person can be both divine and human. This is an example of a problem that plagues metaphysicians in other guises, where some single entity supposedly has contradictory properties. This kind of thing happens, for instance, when we think about universals. A universal is supposed to be what makes something what it is. To take a common example in Indian philosophy, cowhood 
is a universal and it's why a cow is a cow and not a dog or a goat or a person. So cowhood has to be present in every cow. But a universal is also supposed to be a unified single thing. So now we have something which seems to be many and one at the same time. Both Christians who accept that Jesus is divine and Hindus who accept that Krishna is divine have to do some metaphysical heavy lifting, at least some explanation, in order to account for these apparently contradictory facts. The history of Christian theology and philosophy is littered with different attempts, some of which get tossed aside as heretical. Denying Jesus' full humanity is a no-go. He's not just pretending to be human. And denying his full Godhead is a no-go as well. He's not just a very special human being. But how to explain being divine and human simultaneously? Well, perhaps we can appeal to parts. This is one way, too, of making sense of Krishna. Some people say that his human part is human, but he also has a divine part. Of course, this brings us back to thinking about Shankara and Ramanuja's metaphysics, among others, since we have to have a solution which not only takes into account Krishna, but also Vishnu's relationship to Brahman and our relationship to them as well. Maybe you don't accept Christian, Buddhist, or Hindu ideas about our existing reality. But with the increasing sophistication of artificial intelligence, both with chatbots and with visual and auditory technology, it seems probable that we could preserve some aspects of ourselves even after our bodies and brains stop working. If we could upload all of our writing, all of our online activity, maybe record a video with some reflections before we die, perhaps an artificial intelligence avatar could be created that interacts with people. Some companies are even starting this process already. This South Korean girl passed away due to a disease. Yet, her mother is now able to meet her late daughter in virtual reality. The technicians of Vive Studios synthesized the child's voice using private recordings. Her face and body were reconstructed. An incredible achievement. Thinking about avatars in the context of Hinduism and Buddhism shows us ways of reflecting philosophically about what this new emerging situation might mean. Would we continue to exist as an avatar? Should these AI avatars be bound to existing ethical norms? What should we say about their status as real? Are they real persons, but just real digital persons? And as we've seen with the avatars of the Mahabharata and the manifestations of the Buddha, these beings come into existence for a purpose. What is the purpose for bringing AI avatars into existence? These questions are not exactly new, as we've now seen, but perhaps they're newly relevant. Next time on Sutras and Stuff, we'll look at the word mantra, usually pronounced in its anglicized version as mantra or mantra, depending on whether you're American or British. And if you enjoy the show, follow me on Twitter at Sutras and Stuff, that's all spelled out, where you can share comments and questions about the episodes. 